Well, good morning, Seabreeze. As you can tell, the movie today is Alice Through the Looking Glass. This is the second installment of the Alice in Wonderland movies. And in this movie, if you haven't seen it, Alice slips through the mirror, as you can see there, and she finds herself back in Underland. And there she discovers that the Mad Hatter is madder than usual. (laughs) He is depressed, in fact, and he's depressed about some events that have occurred in the past, particularly to his family. So Alice travels to the Castle of Eternity, where Time, who is a magical being, sits on a black throne ruling over the passing of time. In this movie, Time is not just the villain. Time is actually the theme of the movie. And as the creatures of Underland say about Time, Time is a cruel master. Time is a thief. Time is a villain. He relentlessly marks our time until, as the movie says, we tick our last talk. Now, it really is true that time can be very unkind. It keeps us locked in the present, unable to go back in the past and fix what we've done wrong. Uh, It's very rarely kind to our appearance. It mercilessly marches us towards our final day, kind of pushing us to the edge without any chance to back up. Now, the Bible agrees that time is evil, but that's not how time always was. We were not created to be victims of time, according to Scripture. Unlike Alice, though, we we can't steal something called a chronosphere from someone called time so that we can travel across something called the ocean of time back into the past and undo what's been done. We don't have the option. That's a fantasy story. So the option the Bible gives us, the solution that God gives us, is to redeem the time that we have left whether that's a great amount of time or a short amount of time. It states this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Here's what it says. See that you walk circumspectly, which means very carefully, very precisely, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The question I want to address this morning is how do you go about redeeming time? Well, first of all, we need to understand what it means to redeem. Redeem, the definition of redeem is to regain possession of. That's its definition. God is the owner of time. He is the one that created not only you and me, but time itself. And he loaned each of us a limited amount of time. Now, every once in a while, we have a moment of clarity about this. Usually when life is particularly fragile, we or someone we know is near death, and we refer to them as being on what? Borrowed time. But that's not just something that happens when we are near the end, that's actually true of every single day. We are living on borrowed time. And then when sin entered into the world, all of us have used the time that has been loaned to us to do whatever we want to do, more than do what God would want us to do. And collectively, that's why the days are referred to now as evil. The idea is that that time now, as each of us use our borrowed time to do whatever we want, time is now taking us all further and further and history further and further away from the owner of time. And so we redeem time whenever we decide to use some of the time that we've been loaned to carry out the purposes of God, to do what he wants us to do in time, to carry out what God intended, the one who owns every second that we've been loaned. 
when we do that, we are actually returning time to its rightful owner. We're, we're marking off a period of time and say, okay, I'm going to treat this time as it actually is, God's time, and I'm going to use it for his purposes. Now, to help us understand what it takes for us to redeem time, we're going to look at a real person. Alice in Wonderland isn't going to help us because Underland isn't real and Alice isn't real. So we're going to look at Esther, and that's why I'm calling this Esther Through the Looking Glass. If you looked at the title, you thought, oh, they made a mistake. Actually, that was intentional. We're going to look at Esther. Esther was a person in the Old Testament. There's a book written about her story, a small book. And out of her story, we're going to look at three principles that are critical for us if we're going to redeem the time that we've been loaned. Principle number one is this. We have to hold your plans, our plans, loosely. In order for us to use time for God's purposes, we often need to alter or jettison completely some plans that we're holding pretty tightly. This was true for Esther, and it's true for us. The book of Esther starts this way in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, the empire of the day, the Persian empire. Esther lived around 500 BC in Susa, which was the royal city of Xerxes, the emperor of Persia. We're going to list some of the characters on the screen so that as we get a few more added up, you'll hopefully be able to stay on track with the story. And this was known as the time of Xerxes, as it says in this verse. And the reason is obvious, because he's the one that ruled most of the world at that time. And therefore, what he decided to do, what he planned to do, altered the flow of history more than anyone else. And that's why historians will look back and agree with this was the time of Xerxes. He is the one that influenced that period of history. So it was properly known as his time. Well, his time has come and gone. Now it is our time. Not because we rule over the world, but we rule over some part of it. We don't have the power that Xerxes had, and so our plans don't stretch and have influence like his did. But like him, we have plans, and we use our plans to rule over our much smaller worlds. But in this story, as we tell it, you'll notice that Xerxes' plans are often blocked. And that's something that we experience as well. Just because you have a plan doesn't mean it's going to happen. And whenever your plan is blocked, whether you're someone as powerful as Xerxes or whether you're someone like you and me, it is God's way of reminding us that we, we don't own the time. We are living on borrowed time. And the time is not ours any more than it was his back then. Bigger plans are at work than whatever plans he had and whatever plans we have. Esther's mother and father had died when she was young, and she was being raised by her, olden, her older cousin, Mordecai. Death and hunger were common for the Jews at this time. They were living in captivity, and so for them, the days were definitely evil. And Xerxes decided at this one point in history to throw a six-month-long party. Apparently, the military campaigning was done for a season, and he wanted to display his tremendous wealth, and he wanted to have a good time, so he threw a six-month-long party. One day, when he and all of the invited nobles were very drunk, the king summoned his wife, the queen, to dance before his guests, wearing, as Scripture says, her crown. And the implication is probably little else. Clearly, the days were evil. She refused this 
terrible request. And in a drunken rage, he banishes her as his queen. He removes her as queen. But the next day, as he's beginning to sober up, he, he begins to miss his queen. And so his advisors hatch a plan. They conduct a beauty contest to choose the next queen. And so beautiful women are snatched from their homes all across the empire for this beauty contest. Clearly, the days were evil. Esther was one of these women. And it turns out she won the contest and she became queen. So now Esther was the queen to the enemy of her people. Xerxes had no idea. He didn't know she was Jewish. So let me ask you, who is it that planned this? This is just the opening scene of the story. Who planned this? Well, Xerxes sir didn't plan it. He didn't know what was going on. Esther, I have no idea what her plans were, but I know it, it, there wasn't anywhere remotely close to what happened to her. She didn't plan any of this. From the very beginning of the story, it's, it's clear, and you'll notice this theme throughout the story, that bigger plans are afoot than any individual plan. We view our time as ours to do with what we want, and that's why we believe that our plans should rule. But they don't. Xerxes had plans, but in the end it was the plans of God that prevailed. The point of the story is that the flow of time belongs to God, not us. And if we're going to redeem the time, if we're going to carve out some of the time that we've been loaned by God and submit it back to Him, we're going to have to submit our plans to Him. There's nothing wrong with having plans. But we're going to have to hold those plans loosely so as opportunities come for us to be a part of what God is doing in our time, we're going to have to alter or sometimes completely let go of the plans that we had in order to take advantage of the opportunity. It was true back then, and it's true now. The second principle of time redeemers is to redeem the time, we're going to have to step out from the crowd. The idea of banishing the first queen and of putting on this beauty contest full of contestants from the entire empire was not just Xerxes' idea. As you read the story, you discover that it was the wise men of the day that advised Xerxes to do both of these things. In Esther 1, verse 13, it speaks of these individuals, and it says, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. Another reference to time. But in this case, it says that these are the wise people. They understood the time. So the king had surrounded himself with the wisest people of the time. Now let me ask you, do these guys sound very wise to you? I mean, you know, let's have a six-month drunken party and then force beautiful women to be in a beauty contest. Sounds like a bunch of dirty old men to me, not, not a collection of the wise men of the world. I don't, I don't see the wisdom in this. But you have to realize, if you lived then, at that time, everyone recognized, oh yeah, those are the smart ones. These are the brilliant people. These are the, the, the wisdom of the day is wrapped up in what these people know and what these people say. Now we look back with the advantage of history and we say, what's wrong with them? They're not smart at all. They're pretty dumb. The reason we look back now and shake our heads is because their wisdom went no, went no further than their time. All they understood was what? The times. That's all they knew. 
They knew what was popular. And that hasn't changed. That's what passes for wisdom today. If you know what's popular now, and you do that, and you can clearly articulate that, and you defend that, not only will you fit in, you'll be admired as being brilliant, as being smart, as, as being wise. You'll be admired by your peers. But often what was wise at one point in history, with the advantage of history, we'll look back at it and we say, no, nah, that's, that's dumb. We know better now. And that happens, honestly, to every generation. If you've studied history much, you're reading through history and you're often shaking your heads thinking, what were they thinking? How did that make sense to them? But you have to understand, if you were living then, that would have made sense to you probably because we all get caught in the wisdom of our time. And it's hard for us to see beyond what everyone, and especially the really smart people who are saying it very wisely, say. But what's happening now is we do what every generation has done. We arrogantly think that we're probably the first ones now to get it right. Now, that's what they thought. It's like all of history has now come to this point, and it's so fortunate for us to have arrived on the stage of time when, when well, well, we're just brilliant. We, we, you know, we know. That's what every generation thinks. And it would be arrogant to think that we're any different than them. There are ideas in our culture right now that are very popular. In other words, if you say anything against these ideas, you're an idiot now. But in just a few generations, I promise you, people will say, what was wrong with them? What were they thinking? Just like we're looking back at history and saying, well, what was I thinking? Just like we're looking back at these guys going, those guys aren't smart. They're idiots. That's what they're going to think of the ideas of our culture at some point. So what I'm saying is if we're going to redeem the time, we need to understand more than just the times. We need to have a wisdom that goes deeper than just, well, what's the fashion now? What's the big ideas? And what are the catchphrases? And what are every, what's everyone saying right now? What's popular? We must understand what the timeless one says is right and wrong if we're going to redeem time for him. In order to do that, we're going to have to step out from the crowd to, first of all, listen to what God has to say, not just what everyone else is saying, to listen to what he has to say, and then to actually act on it, to do what he says. If we, if we just keep hanging out with the crowd, looking smart like everyone else is, we're not going to redeem the time. Because we'll never extend beyond the wisdom of this time, just like every generation has its own wisdom. Haman was probably the king's wisest and most trusted advisors. And so he, at one point in the story, is promoted. He's promoted to the number one position under the king, of which he's number two now in the entire empire. Brilliant man. Brilliant of the day. And so there was a parade that was thrown in his honor. <clears throat> and during this parade, Haman notices a man who was not bowing. Now, that's very unusual. You have to understand at this time, the kings taught and the wisdom of the day was that these kings were not just individuals who ruled for a period of time, but these were, these were gods themselves. This was deity. And so when either the king himself or someone who the king had decided to honor would proceed through the city in a procession, everyone had to fall on their faces in worship and bow before the king or the king's representative. And to refuse to do so was to invite death because the kings were, were seen as gods, as 
deity. But this man was not bowing, and the name of this man was Mordecai, the cousin and father figure of Esther. And the reason he didn't bow was not because of rebellion against the king per se. It was more because he worshipped the true God, and God had been very clear, you're not to have any other gods before me. This was in the Ten Commandments. You, you don't bow before any man as king. Oh, you respect authority, but, but you don't treat anyone else like me. You don't worship anyone else. And so that wasn't the wisdom of the day. That was God's wisdom, but that wasn't the wisdom of his day. But he stepped out from the crowd at a risk to his life and said, I, I can't do this. And that absolutely infuriated Haman. Haman's just been promoted, and now there's a singular person defying defying him, defying, defying him. And he decides not just to put Haman, to, or not just decides that he's going to wipe out every single member of Mordecai's race. He's going to eliminate all the Jews in the entire empire. And so Haman chooses the day, and he writes up a law, and he convinces the king to sign this decree into law. And the decree is that on this day, everyone has the right to kill every single Jew they know and to take their possessions. Annihilation decree would have wiped out the people. And what you have to understand about laws at this time is once the king signs them into law and puts his seal on that law, it can't be undone. It's not like it is now. If we pass a bad law, well, then we just undo that law or rewrite that law or amend things to that law. It can't be done back then. The reason, again, is because the kings are not just people writing laws. They're gods, and gods don't make mistakes. So once God speaks, that's, that's in stone. That law can't be changed. So here you have the most powerful people of history. I mean, if you haven't read history, just read about the Persian Empire. They were a powerful empire. You have the most powerful people of history doing what passed as wisdom in that day, and you have one singular individual, a weak person, stepping out from the crowd and standing up against what was wrong. How's that story going to end, you think? I mean, you just, just look at the facts. It looks like Mordecai is going to get steamrolled by time. I mean, how, how could he survive? How could his people survive? But you see, the owner of time had not abandoned history and has not abandoned history to its downward spiral. No matter how evil the days get, God has not abandoned time. He owns it. And God himself is at work in the flow of time, no matter how bad it gets. You see, the king, who had just signed the death warrant for all the Jews, remember, had now unknowingly chosen a Jew for his queen. Who had set that up before? Huh. None of the characters in the story. Only God had done this. God had embedded an opportunity in the flow of these evil days. But an opportunity is just an opportunity that has to be redeemed. In order for God's purposes to take place, Esther had to redeem that opportunity. And that required her to take a tremendous risk. She had to speak up. And that's the third thing that's often true, almost always true of those who redeem time. God's wisdom. But then they speak up. They say something about the situation. Mordecai went to his cousin Esther 
to tell her of this new law and to ask her to beg the king to change it. Well, of course, the problem with that is you can't change laws about the situation. Mordecai went to his cousin Esther to tell her of this new law and to ask her to beg the king to change it. Well, of course, the problem with that is you can't change laws. But there's another problem, and that is no one can approach the king without being summoned. That was another law. The penalty of that was death. I mean, Xerxes' plans ruled. You, you couldn't even interrupt him. You couldn't even put a request in for an appointment. You had to wait for the king to summon you, whether you were queen or anyone else. And from Esther's perspective, to make matters worse, it had been 30 days since the king had summoned Esther. That's not a good sign. And she knew it. So Esther sends word back to her cousin Mordecai, reminding him of the tremendous risk that he is asking of her and telling him of the fact that she hasn't been summoned in 30 days. And it's quite possible the king is upset with her for some reason. And here's what we read in response to this situation in Esther chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent, this, this, sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jew, Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. What he's saying is, Esther, have you ever wondered what happened to your old life and why you're now in the palace and why you're queen? It's, it's for this. This is an opportunity of a flashing red light opportunity. This doesn't get any bigger than this. You are there for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather all of the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther decides to redeem the time, to take advantage of this opportunity. She realizes that her life and her time are not hers, and that she now, her entire life has come to this point where she gets a chance to pay with her voice and maybe with her life for a, for a small chunk of time. It may just be five seconds of time where she will serve God's purposes. So she does what no queen before her had ever done. She walks into the king's inner court, which was a sign of tremendous disrespect in this setting. I mean, this, this is not King Arthur of Camelot. This is Xerxes. If you've read much history, well, you know Xerxes was one of the cruelest emperors ever walked this planet. She was walking into his presence. But to everyone's amazement and Esther's great relief, the king held out his scepter, which was a sign to the guards to let her live just a little bit longer. And the king asks her what she is requesting. And she requests that the king and Haman join her for a private banquet at a future date. And the king grants her this request. And Xerxes tells Haman that he has been invited on this date to a banquet with the queen and himself. That's a tremendous honor for Haman. 
On the way out, after having been informed that he has been invited, it's just a, a three of them at this banquet, Xerxes, the, the king, the queen, and Haman. I mean, just imagine, you get called to the White House, president, first lady, and you. That's going to make you feel kind of important, right? That's what was happening to Haman. On the way out, being puffed with this pride, Haman sees Mordecai. Filled with all the pride of having been just invited to a banquet with the king and the queen, Haman decides that he can't wait for the day of annihilation when it becomes legal for him to take out Mordecai. He decides he's got to do this now. And because of the position he has with the king, he feels like he can do whatever he wants now. So that night, he has gallows built on his property for the purpose of hanging Mordecai in the morning. But that very same night, the king can't sleep. He doesn't have Netflix, so he doesn't know what to do. So he invites some of the scribes of the day to bring the history books of his reign in and, and just kind of read some of the history. I mean, just how arrogant can you be? Just read some of my greatness to me as I try to fall asleep. Volume three, I like that volume. Let's, you know, how great was I then? And so this is what's going on. The king's being read of the history of his, his rule, his empire. And at this point, he comes across, or he's, he hears the, the telling of the story about how earlier Mordecai had discovered an assassination plot in the palace and had thwarted that plot and had saved the king's life. He had forgotten about this. I mean, it happened, but he'd forgotten about this. And as he's hearing this story read to him again about what's happened, he realizes that Mordecai had never been honored for discovering this assassination plot and for saving his life. And so he decides that night before he finally goes to sleep is, you know what, first thing in the morning, we've got to honor Mordecai. <laughs> the next morning, Haman rushes into the king to get the king's permission to hang Mordecai. But before he can utter a single word to the king, the king asks him, Haman, what would you do to honor someone that I really want to honor? Well, Haman immediately thinks, it's me. It's me, me, me. It's all about me. It's got to be me. I mean, who else would he want to honor? I'm number three. I, I've got this banquet coming up. This life is just great. What could the king do to honor me, is what Mordecai thinks. So, or Haman thinks. So Haman comes up with this elaborate plan. It involves a parade through the streets of the city of the capital on the king's horse, which no one rides but the king wearing the king's robes, which no one wears but the king. And uh, kind of put the cherry on top of it all, he says, and then there should be a servant in front of the person you want to honor, sitting on your horse, wearing your robes, who is declaring in a loud voice to everyone that can hear, this is the man that the king wishes to honor. And King Xerxes hears him and says, that's great. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Wouldn't you love to have video of that? I mean, I, I wish, you know, I just wish I could have seen the look on his face. Wait, what? And then to watch him, you probably had never heard anyone do less honoring verbally than this guy did as he was pulling the horse, the king's horse, and having to honor his enemy. Well, after this great humiliation happens, Haman returns home to tell his family and friends what just happened with his day. 
And as they hear the story of what occurred and the timing of it, they realize that a power greater than any plan that they could ever hatch is at work. And they basically tell Haman, you're a dead man. You can't outflank whoever's doing all this. Right then, right after they say, you're a dead man, the king's servants arrive to take him to the banquet with Esther and the king. Esther, at this banquet, turns out to be the second banquet. Esther tells the king about Haman's plot against her people. She reveals that she is a part of those people and that it's actually a plot against her and her entire people. And the king is so incensed and so raged that Haman immediately, he falls on his face and begins to beg for his life. The king is so furious that he can't even talk to him. He just walks out and the guards know this guy's not going to live. What ends up happening is the king has Haman hanged on his own gallows in his own property, the gallows that he had built the previous day to hang Mordecai on. And then the king wrestles with the problem that he has created by doing this law, writing this law that cannot be underdone, and he comes up with a pretty good idea. He writes a new law, not to counter that one, but a new law that says on this exact day, every Jewish person has the right to fully and completely arm themselves and to band together and to form an army and to defend themselves. And everyone, once they get that decree, says, yeah, we're not going to do anything. You know, if, if, if we could have all, the, all of the weapons and we could just take from them and kill them, then we'd do that, but we don't want to go to war. And so not a single Jew dies on that day. Don't you wish this could be made into a movie? I mean, all the drivel that comes out in the movie theater, this this would make a great movie. But this Esther story is not just an anomaly. It's not just, hey, this happened once, so it's in the Bible. We read in the New Testament that the things that have happened in the Old Testament were written down as examples for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So that we can see this. These are templates. This is not just odd things that every once in a while happen. This is what God does. God will take our seemingly normal days and give us the opportunity to be part of his plan. Now, it may not be at a level that Esther's was. It may not be, you know, number two in the nation. But it's going to be significant. And as it was for Esther, we will be where we are for such a time as this. And we'll look around like Esther looked around, and there was nobody else. It was her. It was, it was her decision, and it will be our decision at those moments. You see, this was called the time of Xerxes. What he decreed happened. But in this story, it is so clear that he isn't in charge at all. God was at work. Now, what's interesting to me is God was at work, not just generally, but with tremendous timing and great precision. I mean, just think about the timing of these things. I mean, Esther didn't know that her banquet would inflate Haman's ego so much that when he saw her cousin, he would snap and have to go build those gallows. Haman had no idea that the timing of his arrival to the palace meant that he'd have to parade around the city shouting praise to his enemy. He had no idea that while he was building those gallows, the king was being read the story about the assassination plot that was thwarted by his enemy Mordecai. He had no, Haman had no idea that was going on. I mean, if this was a movie and every script had been written, you would have to rehearse this again and again and again to get the timing right. 
to, to get the moment of walking into the palace and, and walking out of the palace and the, the parade and, and the, the gallows. I mean, to, just to get all that together, you'd have, to, you'd have to stage it. You'd have to storyboard it. You'd have to put cameras in position and get boom mics in position. You'd have to rehearse and rehearse. You'd have to do take after take. And finally, it would flow exactly as it says the story flowed. But you see, this isn't a movie. This happened in real time. You couldn't just pause and say, oh, wait, wait, wait. Haman's like three and a half steps out of sync. We got we to get him a little further ahead so that he can see Mordecai as Mordecai's walking by. You couldn't do that. You can't push pause on time. This happened in real time. This wasn't even slow motion time. This, this happened in real time. All these moving parts, all these pieces precisely to this. I mean, isn't it just amazing? Doesn't it give you tremendous hope about your life? I mean, we're just kind of walking through our day thinking stuff's just kind of happening. And God's involved at a precise level. Your plans and my plans and the plans of those around us are not near as powerful as the one who rules time. And so if we want our life to count in this time and then beyond time for eternity, we're going to have to hold our plans loosely. Now, it's not bad to make plans, but get ready to change them. So that, like Esther, we're ready to make the most of the opportunities God gives. And, and here's a critical one, we must be willing to step out from the crowd when the opportunity comes. One day, the brilliant people of our time are going to look just goofy, silly. I mean, just think about it. Five years ago, just one example, five years ago, our president emphatically said some things very different than he does right now just about the topic of marriage just five years ago. Well, who knows what's going to be right and wrong 10 years from now. And see, the problem with understanding your time is, is when we treat the wisdom of our time as real wisdom, people are actually building lives on these ideas. This is, this is more than just fashion coming and going. You know, if you, if you get caught in a bad fashion decade like I did in the 70s, okay, so your graduation picture is just going to look weird for the rest of your life. You know, it doesn't really impact your life that much. You just don't ever post it anywhere and don't ever show it to anybody, and you're fine. But if you build a life on a bad set of ideas, not just a bad fashion set of ideas, well, you're going to pay for that for your entire life. You, you can't scrub that. God has spoken to us from beyond time in the pages of the Bible. We have the chance to build our lives based on his wisdom, not the current trends, not the wisdom of our time. But, and here's the critical point, here's the big but. What that means is we're going to have to look uncool to those who only understand the times. We are going to have to look like idiots. Or as the words that are being said now, bigots, hateful people. We're going to have to look really bad to do what God says. But like Esther and like Mordecai, God will give us the opportunity in our time to step out from the crowd and say what God wants us to say. And like Mordecai said to Esther, if you remain silent, God will carry out his plan, but you'll be sidelined. You won't get to be a part of it. Time redeemers never act because they're certain of the outcomes. No, they speak up because they're committed to do the right thing regardless of the outcome. You know, Esther never planned 
If you ever woke up one day saying, you know what, I want to be the first person ever to approach the king unsummoned just to see what might happen. Nobody does that. But that was the opportunity presented to her. In the moment, it was the only right thing to do in order to stay faithful to God. That'll happen to you. That'll happen to me. It has and it will. This week even, there will be opportunities to redeem the time. We will have the chance to have God's purposes occur through us just like they did through Esther 2,500 years ago. You see, we are here today because God has loaned us another day. I hope everyone makes it to the end of the day. I mean, maybe God only loaned you a few more hours, but most likely he's loaned us all at least another day. And God's purpose in loaning another day to us is not so that we can mark another day. He doesn't give us time so that we can mark it. He gives us time so that we can redeem it. That's his purpose for us in the flow of time. So I have some next steps for us to consider as we move on in time and the opportunities come. These are on the back of your connection card, also the bottom of your listening guide. The first one is read the book of Esther. This is a great story. You've got to read the whole thing. I tried to summarize it as best I could, but you've got to read this. This is a page turner. This is a lean forward in your seat. You won't be able to put this down. Short book, but I, I encourage you to read the book of Esther this week. Number two, look for opportunities this week. Just wake up each morning and say, God, help me to see an opportunity. You know, we get so locked into our times and our schedules. Say, hey, I've got time. This is what I said to God. Is I, got, I got a full day. It's all planned out. But, you know, help me see the opportunities and be ready to alter or jettison or change whatever plan needs to be so I can take advantage of the opportunities and redeem that chunk of time for your purposes. So look for the opportunities and then pray for the courage to speak up. It takes tremendous courage in any culture to look like an idiot. I mean, thankfully, it doesn't cost us our life to do that right now. It did for Mordecai. That was what he was risking. We don't take that risk. But it will cost us our perception and what people think of us. But we have to have the courage. So pray for the courage. Ask God for courage to speak up when the opportunities come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. We thank you for the time you've given those that we love, our children. We recognize that it is not our time to do with as we please. This is your time on loan from you. And we recognize too, especially those of us that are older, we, we admit we have wasted so much time that you've loaned us. And with whatever time we have left, we, we want to do a whole lot better. We want to recognize opportunities. We want to be willing to step out from the crowd and then speak up in those moments. I pray that you would, you would help us. You'd give us the courage. We live in a time, really like any time, when to think differently than the current culture, uh, it, it will cost us. I pray you'd help us to be willing to pay that price and that you would use us to turn the tide of time back towards you. We need your help. And we ask for it now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.